This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Melanie Bunce cut her teeth in journalism at the Otago Daily Times. Now she teaches and researches it at one of the UK's most prestigious journalism schools, where she's been tracking the megatrends that are buffeting the world's news media these days. Her new book is billed as a much-needed assessment of the future for New Zealand journalism in a troubled world. So what state does she think it's in right now? We'll also hear about a local ad agency's effort that was meant to go viral, grab the media's attention and boost a client's brand. But it didn't. Uh, In retrospect, that is much too close, and so I certainly apologise for that. Oh dear. But before all that, though, efforts to confront two different but deadly diseases hit the headlines this past week, and both of them needed a lot of explanation. But sometimes opinions in the media obscured the news we can use. Auckland's medical officer of health fears it's only a matter of time before the disease kills. The fatality rate is about one in a thousand, but that doesn't mean you have to reach a thousand before someone dies. Someone could die at at, at any time of this. It just means the more numbers, the more likely it is that um, there will be a fatality. A stark warning there from Dr William Ranger on News Hub at 6 earlier this week amid the biggest outbreak of measles here for more than 20 years. The swelling number of cases prompted the government to fire up the National Health Coordination Centre last weekend when the front page of the Herald on Sunday was covered in 937 angry red blotches, one for every New Zealander known to have picked up the measles since March. Inside the paper, Starship Children's Hospital head Dr Mike Shepherd warned that children could die and he hoped the information in the Herald on Sunday and elsewhere would inspire us all to work together to eliminate the threat of measles. And in a minute, we'll look at all that. But by Sunday afternoon, it was the government's response to a different disease which had also hit the headlines. The announcement has come out, the details have come out of the government's independent cancer agency. And to explain more, joining us now is Health Minister David Clark. Thank you so much for joining us. No, pleasure, Tim. David, let's imagine I'm diagnosed with cancer. How will my care change on a day-to-day basis under this new regime? Well, uh, we've made a number of uh, announcements today about the changing nature of cancer care in New Zealand. There were several facets to the government's long-awaited cancer policy strategy, as the Health Minister David Clark there told Newstalk ZB's weekend collective show last weekend. But the media, as they have in the past, focused overwhelmingly on two things, the available budget for super-costly new cancer drugs and an independent cancer agency to tackle the so-called postcode lottery, variations in cancer care delivered by different DHBs around the country. And in response to the government's announcement last Sunday, we heard a fairly familiar range of voices in the media on the issue. One was a terminally ill sufferer from Southland, Blair Vining, who featured on RNZ News at 8 last Monday morning like this. Since January, Blair Vining, who has terminal bowel cancer, has campaigned for a plan and an agency to drive improvements in care. He says the release of the plan shows it was worth fighting for. And the same morning, Blair Vining was on TBNZ's breakfast show, welcoming the Cancer Action Plan and the new Cancer Care Agency. Both governments, you know, they're both scrapping over it, so that's really good to see that they both really care about cancer. There was also approval from the plan that morning from Newstalk ZB's Mike Hosking. Can there be many critics of what the government has done on cancer? If it doesn't work, we'll hear about it, of course. But as it sits today, it's about bloody time, don't you think? But there were critics, those who have called long and loudly in the media for much more public money for costly cancer drugs. And none has been louder than Duncan Garner, who has used his AM show on 3 and the radio station Magic Talk as a kind of personal pulpit on the issue. Truth is, 60 million bucks over two years for new drugs. 
It's piddly. It's actually disappointing. It may not even go into cancer drugs. Pharmac needs to double its budget. On his show last Monday, Duncan Garner interviewed Professor Diana Sarfati, the cancer epidemiologist who's been appointed as the Interim National Director of Cancer Control, and he gave her a fair hearing, during which she reminded him it's not all about the drugs. If you look at a combination of early diagnosis, radiotherapy and surgery, those three alone are responsible for 80 to 90% yep, of cancer that. cures and, 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 and control. So I'm looking at that. Professor Safati went on to explain that the two-to-one expenditure in Australia wasn't really apples with apples because Australia pays much more for its medicine because it has no pharmac to keep the cost down. But that didn't change Duncan Garner's hostile tune with the Health Minister David Clark later on. Why are they more generous than us, though, David? Why can't we keep up with Australia? No, no, bugger it. Why can't we keep up with Australia, David? Um, Duncan, we're very focused on making sure we put the money uh, into the different range of services that are available because we know the biggest changes will be made in prevention and screening. We also know that those Linux, which we've put into the regions, uh, $25 million announcement, so those why can't we where do, people why are, can't we do what Australia will make does. a big difference. So not, we, we, not drugs it's, it's, and not the whole picture, garbage. Duncan. Duncan Garner followed up that challenge with this one. Why are you ignoring my question? Why can't we fund New Zealanders' cancer like they do to Australians with Australian in Australia, Duncan, we, we are increasing uh, the funding for drugs and we will continue to increase the funding for drugs. So there's a greater chance of still surviving in Australia than there is here in New Zealand. Uh, well, that's I a fact, think isn't it? But that's not actually a fact for many cancers. In spite of not spending as much per head as Australia, the major international Concord 3 study found that New Zealand was in the top five countries in the world last year for survival rates for common cancers. The UK, which has the kind of cancer drugs fund that Duncan Garner has called for, is not in the top five, along with us or Australia. The government's Cancer Action Plan document released last Sunday has good news on this. Our overall cancer survival rates are improving, it says, and that's down to a combination of better diagnostics, more timely diagnoses and more effective treatment. And treatment doesn't just mean new pharmaceuticals. It also means new surgical techniques and new radiotherapy options. The Cancer Action Plan concludes... New Zealanders can expect that we will manage most cancers long-term as chronic, but treatable diseases. Which doesn't chime at all with Duncan Garner's claim in the Dominion Post back in July, if you have cancer, prepare to die, because New Zealand sucks. Last Monday, Duncan Garner also spoke to the campaigner Blair Vining, who told him the minister is on the right track. But Duncan Garner didn't agree, even when challenged by his own colleagues on the show. Why was he average? Probably because you've poo-pooed it all morning, so he thought he was coming here with this wonderful big announcement that people were going to get behind him, and you slammed him for it. So I was thinking, just telling the truth. I was just telling the truth. I was peeling back the layers of crap and just telling people how it really is underneath it all. And co-host Mark Richardson then weighed in with a kind of party political statement on behalf of the National Party. We've learned from our mistakes, and we will, we will get the hits next time round. I'm telling you right now, National did virtually nothing. Um, it doesn't matter. We've we've come up with. Doesn't matter what we did. It's what we're going to do. And I think the fact that one that they're they're going to have an independent agency, I think, is is, is a step in the right direction as well. Mark, our poll today, scones or muffins? What do you prefer, muffins uh, or scones? Yes yeah. or no? 71% of people uh, like scones as opposed to 29% would prefer muffins. Can I just... Um... So it's not always the politicians adding what Duncan Garner called layers of crap into the public debate about cancer. Now, after all that, live on air on Monday, the headline on his website piece was $60 million for new cancer drugs is piddly, even though, as we've heard, Pharmax funding boost isn't all earmarked for cancer drugs. Indeed, that was his first question to the Prime Minister the next day on the AM show.
And you're also saying that there'll be some great outcomes for cancer patients as a result. How can you say that when you're not sure how much of the 60 million is going to cancer drugs? Um, because Pharmac have told us. And In his report on the policy announcement for newsroom.co.nz, political editor Sam Sashdeva said the new strategy is unlikely to stop what he called the impassioned campaigning of those who believe Kiwis are being shortchanged. But Sam Sashdeva said there's a lot more to the plan than cancer drugs. It emphasises prevention, things like vaping to reduce levels of lung cancer and more sun safety promotion to tackle high rates of skin cancer. And while Duncan Garner was sounding off at the Minister on three, John Campbell on TVNZ's breakfast show reckoned the National Cancer Action Plan will bring previously hidden regional discrepancies to light. Because DHBs were hinding behind. They were, they, they were trying to get the, the southern DHB to front on the urology department, on their failures in prostate cancer care and their failures in bowel cancer. It was almost mission impossible. Now there's nowhere to hide. She will know the numbers and she will be on to them, at least in theory. Now in the breakfast show studio at that time was Efeso Collins, Pacifica community leader and Auckland councillor. And he made the point that the action plan also aims to even out cancer survival for Māori and non-Māori by 2030. Yeah, well, when it comes to cancer, obviously it reaches many of us, and uh, so there's a whole lot of pain. But what we're seeing now is the data emerge around how it, it disproportionately affects poorer families, which are predominantly Māori and Pacific. Look, there's uh, Dr Hawa, I think her name is, wrote an article about how if you're Māori, you're 20% more likely to get cancer. You're going to be diagnosed late, you're going to be checked late, there's going to be late treatment. And so everything's happening later. So in other words, those regional differences are only part of the inequity. Within DHB regions, poorer families and Māori and Pacifica ones suffer much more from cancer as things stand. But that's not a point that was widely explored in critiques of the so-called postcode lottery. Efeso Collins went on to point out that the same applies to the other health emergency currently preoccupying the media. I know our conversations are around cancer, but you look at the measles uh, mm. outbreak that's happening at the moment, where's it predominance? It's in South Auckland, it's amongst Māori and Pacific. That's where we've got it. So we know that this data exists. And that data is crucial to the tale of how the measles has spread since last March. Staff data journalist Andy Fires and reporter Michelle Duff crunched the numbers impressively to explain falling vaccination rates and the incidence of what's been called vaccine hesitancy, the reluctance or even refusal to vaccinate even where vaccines are readily available. Misinformation online is a factor in this, they said, and... The most vulnerable, experts say, are increasingly targeted and swayed by fake science and misinformation. Our social networks could save us, or they could cost us lives. But they concluded that it's not just a clutch of anti-vaxxers operating online who are responsible for that. Michelle Duff and Andy Fires also tracked and visualised the problems of poverty and access to vaccines to explain the apparent loss of herd immunity to measles and the consequences now that we have an outbreak centred on Auckland. But economic deprivation doesn't tell the entire story either, they said. Vaccination rates are dropping across communities, irrespective of income they found. And a similar investigation by the Herald's data specialist Chris Knox and reporter Kirsty Johnson drew a similar conclusion. A Herald analysis of immunisation data finds just 77% of six-months-old are now getting their vaccines on time. While the debate has been centred around the impact of the anti-vax movement, the numbers paint a different picture. Other media also produced valuable and informative articles to explain how the sudden spread of a disease that doesn't seem to scare us anymore has now put kids in danger and our herd immunity out the pasture. 
By and large, the media did a good job at getting to grips with a complicated situation and communicating a clear picture of it. It's a shame the same can't always be said of the coverage of cancer, where other people's lives are also on the line, and opinions can also drown out the news we could really use. As we heard earlier, cancer care was at the top of Duncan Garner's list for his weekly Q&A with the PM last Tuesday. But when he was done with that, he asked her this. OK, now, um, right, let's talk about um, the TV industry. Can you save the TV industry? Where, where are we at with the media? Can you save the media industry? <laughs> oh, well, it probably um, it's, it's good asking you about that as, as it is um, me, Duncan. And it didn't sound much like Jacinda Ardern was expecting to be asked to save the media industry, television in particular. But plans for the media are on her government's to-do list. We know that we have work to do in this space. Our focus has been on public broadcasting. Um, that's, you know, that's an area where we have some responsibility because, of course, we want to make sure that people are able to access uh, high-quality information, that they can tell their own stories, and uh, that's something we've long said that we wanted to take a look at. Chris Farfoy is the one who's doing the work on that at the moment. Chris Farfoy being the current Minister of Broadcasting and Digital Media. Now, he's currently mulling over a reset of this government's public funding broadcasting policy because the one they went into the election with has been junked. And now he's also under heavy pressure to help private media companies enduring tight financial times for the industry. Indeed, on his show last month, Duncan Garner called on the minister, a former rival TV reporter, for help. Mr Farfoy, please help us. Climate change, yes. The climate has changed you're doing. Don't kill us at the same time. Change the game. Make it fairer, please. Duncan Garner went on to say that all news media players are currently in the same sinking ship. This is not sour grapes. NZME, Fairfax, we can only contract. We, we, we can't compete. We can't compete when the other guy's rules are, are different. Ultimately, we die. But the same day, his news boss, Hal Crawford, and the chief executive at MediaWorks, Michael Anderson, reinforced that message out loud in public. If things are bad in the media company's boardrooms, the newsroom usually feels the pain. And it's not just here, but all around the world that big names that have dominated the national media in the past are suddenly something of a sunset industry in the digital age. Watching all this play out from London is Melanie Bunce. She cut her teeth in journalism at the Otago Daily Times and now she teaches and researches it at one of the UK's most prestigious journalism schools, City University. She's been surveying the state of New Zealand's media for a book published this week by Bridget Williams Books. It's called The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World and it's billed as a much-needed assessment of the future for New Zealand journalism in a troubled world. At the end of the book, Melanie Bunce made the point that corporations were deemed too big to fail in the global financial crisis a decade ago, and she told me that journalism is too important to fail now. The media really underpins so many of our democratic institutions. So it's not just operating in a silo, doing its own thing, you know, sharing the news and, and talking to audiences. It's actually completely essential for all of the other parts of the democratic system to work. So... For us to be able to cast a meaningful vote, we have to have information, and that comes from the media, and to know how our politicians are behaving and what they're up to and to kind of flush out those who are more corrupt or not doing a great job. And finally, we really need the media to give us a space as citizens to discuss and deliberate and raise our concerns so that political figures can, can act. Are you actually suggesting that the state, uh, governments around the world, should keep the news media alive if it looks like they're going to collapse? 
Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I, I believe that much more than I think I believe that the financial institutions needed to be bailed out. The, the commercial model was failing and in places where it really does seem to be failing, um, in particular, I think, in regional and local journalism, um, we're seeing a total market failure around the world. And I think it's really crucial that we do step in to intervene in those situations. In your book, you look at New Zealand journalism today within this global context that we've talked about, these current trends. Mm-hmm. Um, one chapter of it is dedicated to looking at well, how uh, it performs key functions, that the vital roles of collecting and verifying information, holding elites to account, providing a forum for public debate. Those are three key functions you identify. So what are your conclusions mm-hmm. then about New Zealand journalism today in 2019 as far as those three things go? I, th- I think there are lots of strengths in New Zealand journalism and lots of fantastic work being done. So New Zealand has fantastic national news. We see really good features and analysis. Um, there's lots of strong pieces. But there's also a lot of uh, newspapers closing down in the regions. There's a lot of journalists being cut. According to the census, 60% of print journalists were cut between the last two censuses. And we're also seeing the neglect of global news. So it's very uncommon to see original uh, news about international issues being made by the New Zealand media because it's just so expensive. I also considered whether it's doing a good job of being critical. We see lots of press releases and publicity teams who are able to influence journalists that don't have enough time to do critical work anymore. So although there's some good work and there's lots of new organisations doing some great stuff, it's not necessarily being done systematically. But you also say, Melanie... Uh, in your words here again, somewhat confusingly, mm-hmm. in some areas, journalism is better today than it's ever been. Uh, cast yep. the net around New Zealand media in 2019, you see some of the best journalism that's ever been made in this country. What are the sources of this this good stuff? We're seeing multimedia interactive journalism that was never possible in the past. Things like uh, Stuff's website work on the treaty um, that came out in 2018, a great interactive piece about important New Zealand history. Um, We're also seeing investigative journalists being able to do crowdsourcing work. And I think there's also a lot of really funny, diverse content that we never had, you know, because it's fun, irreverent content that's representing more diverse groups. You know, we now have, as you've mentioned, uh, online startups, things like Newsroom, for example, with a staff of 16 or 17 that are conducting significant public interest investigations that have had a national impact. Do you think these can actually fill the void if traditional news media companies like Stuff, if they go out of business or just stop doing the news. You know, Newsroom and Spinoff and some of these new organisations are winning prizes, national prizes for their fantastic journalism. Uh, Newsroom's doing great um, investigative stuff led by Melanie Reid, but it's uh, not spread around the country um, and it's not necessarily able to do kind of, as I mentioned before, that routine scrutiny. And and they themselves are, you know, acknowledge that and they're not trying to do day-to-day news coverage of courts and councils and these really important local democratic issues. News organisations can succeed in, in spite of the challenges, of course. Um, um, things I talk about in the book is is that the nature of ownership matters a lot when it comes to the media. And so when we have news organisations that have more flexibility say they are backed up by the state or they are owned by someone that really believes in the media, then they tend to have a lot more flexibility to really experiment with their model, try out new things. Um, It's when news organisations are owned by for-profit financial companies, which quite a lot of our media is, um, and they are obliged to return profits to their shareholders. And, And it's much harder for them to justify investing in journalism that doesn't make money. 
We, we, you've also made the point really strongly in the book. One reason why New Zealand journalism is particularly vulnerable is that we have li- mm-hmm. very little publicly funded media to fall back on. However, the government now spends almost a quarter of a billion dollars, just under $250 million a year now, on broadcasting to all its various outlets and agencies. In Australia, they I think the total bill for their three publicly owned networks, that's about $1.1, $1.2 billion Australian dollars, mm-hmm. give or take. To me, that works out about the same per capita. Is the problem mm-hmm. in New Zealand really the money or how we're spending it? I don't think we want to compare ourselves to Australia. They are also having made a few cuts over the last five years or so. New Zealand and Australia are far, far below the UK and um, certainly the Scandinavian countries and Ireland and many others that spend a lot more on public broadcasting. A good chunk of that is going to Māori TV, which is Māori media more generally, which is really important. Um, But you could argue that that shouldn't be included in the figures in quite the same way because it's set up with quite a different remit. It's set up to promote Māori language and culture, and it's done as part of our obligations under the Treaty of Waitangi. And that's a wider remit than journalism and what are we doing to support reporters out on the street that are collecting information and and making it available to the public. Um, And so then after that, we've got Radio New Zealand, which I think is doing great work, quite an anomaly um, amongst a lot of countries that TVNZ is, is run on a commercial model. And New Zealand On Air is also quite an unusual uh, model of funding allocation because it tends to fund ad hoc work, kind of one-off projects or series, but that's not quite the same as supporting the infrastructure of the news, you know, the day-to-day reporting. The current government has effectively paused broadcasting policy and the minister, Chris Farfoy, has now signalled he's pondering all these issues of media plurality, the urgent financial problems of commercial media companies which have been flagged up to him by the top brass of those companies that things aren't sustainable. Uh, They're going to come back with something they say by the end of the year. We might know what they're planning. But in the meantime, I mean, what do you think the government should do? Maybe the top two or three things it should do um, if it's going to completely reform how it puts public money into the media. I mean, the two big models that I've seen floated, both of which I think have lots of potential, is doing different stuff with um, TV1 and making it non-commercial potentially, and the other one being a kind of expanded Radio New Zealand RNZ that's much more multimedia. Um, so I think both of those have potential. We need to think hard if anyone's doing any investment for the long run about where the audience is in the places they want it online, where they have control over when they watch it or listen to it. Um, and the other thing I think is really important to consider is, is focusing on exactly where the market is failing. Um, and so that might not be ad hoc funding for feature journalism. It's, I think, again, thinking about, well, how do we support local media, really critical scrutinies of, of powerful institutions? What sort of structure do you think will work for New Zealand if we have yeah, this, this weird state-owned but effectively commercial TV network, which isn't a public <laughs> asset, really, a fairly basically funded Radio New Zealand operation and these struggling commercial news media companies, which are still important in our whole news ecosystem, if I can put it like that, what would work? The creation of some new public entity or was the minister going to have to think about directly propping up or even buying um, one of these uh, commercial media organisations like, for example, Staff? You need to see the numbers of the different news organisations and how they're doing. I hadn't thought about the purchase of Staff. That seems a little bit left field to me. I think if you were starting from scratch and designing from the ground up, 
you would build uh, something that had a nationwide presence and multimedia capacity and hopefully not a very strong culture of being really commercially focused. You know, you can paint in the details. It's just about resources and well-trained journalists. Are there any uh, models or developments in the overseas media that you've seen that might give New Zealand any kind of template for tackling the problems? Uh, At one point in the book, you refer to Ireland, you know, population almost identical size, an island nation with a bigger neighbour off to the side, um, and they've got eight national newspapers, lots of metro and local journalism. You point out we don't have that. I think Ireland is struggling in many of the same ways we are. I mean, they're... They do have more newspapers um, for a variety of reasons, partly because they have Irish editions of of UK newspapers. So that's just kind of a proximity to the the UK market. But certainly their circulation is going down um, very sharply um, and they are are needing to reinvent themselves um, at news outlets across the country. They do have a a well-funded, well-loved, much more comprehensive public service offering in RTE, and I think it is probably a better model than what we've done historically. But it also will need to be rethinking itself as it kind of moves more of its content online, I'm sure. Um, I I would say that, as always, the Scandinavian countries are doing very well. Finland and Norway both spend, you know, significant amount in Sweden, huge amounts of money on the media in a way that we don't, um, and have hugely high levels of trust in the media in a way that other countries don't um, link to that, I think. Um, there is one model that I also talk about in the book as, as I think, being very positive that we're already experimenting with in New Zealand, and that's the local democracy reporter scheme. Uh, it's just a small pilot in New Zealand. It's based on a BBC or um, overseen one here where journalists are paid for by the government, but they're kind of implanted into commercial newsrooms or, or non-commercial newsrooms that want them. And then the news that they make is shared up and down the country. And I think that's a pretty positive model in some ways. It's only it's not going to solve all of the problems, but it's both making sure some of that local journalism gets done without really, I think, undermining the commercial news outlets that are are struggling. And I think that's quite an elegant solution. It's been pointed out uh, that while journalists and uh, researchers like yourself ponder these issues a lot, the media are now discussing them a lot more and kind of waking the public (laughs) up to the fact that the current media environment isn't sustainable in the form that we've known it for so long. Um, But what the audience wants is often missing from the debate. I think we kind of do and don't need to take the audience really, really seriously. So on the one hand, we do, because one of the models that's working a little bit overseas is these membership models or subscriptions or donations, um, trying to provide news that is really engaging to people and has so much kind of use and value to them that they're willing to pay for it. And so we need to really think a lot more about the audience in that regard. And we see you know, news organisations in New Zealand that are introducing paywalls, they're definitely doing that thinking, you know, what can they do that people will pay for? But at the same time, we also need news that the the audience isn't crazy about. You know, we know that some of the most important news, like I keep going back to it, but scrutinising local council spending, that's not something that usually gets people excited um, or that they want to pay for. But it's really important to us still that that news is being made, even if people don't read it. Um, that much, which sounds ridiculous, but we know from quite a lot of research, just having those journalists present and making that news makes those councillors more honest. Well, Melanie, just finally, uh, we started by talking about 
2016 and that being a year where you think crystallised a lot of the problems with the media that need to be confronted, in part because, you know, you had a Brexit vote where when it was all done, people worried about the, you know, the lack of clear reporting and uh, the balance with misinformation and fake news and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you ready for another election then in the UK? Because it looks (laughs) like you might be having one with uh, that same issue of Brexit in the background. Yeah, no, I, I am certainly not personally ready for another election. Um, and, and I no, but on a serious note, um, I don't think the media is ready for another election. I mean, we are still here unpackaging the questions around, you know, the involvement of groups like Cambridge Analytica and how targeted adverts were taking place on, on social media that were full of misinformation and, and, and people that were breaching um, electoral spending laws to advertise uh, to the audience. So there's a lot that still needs to be sorted out. And I'm afraid I don't have too much hope that we'll be able to do that by October the 14th. So um, it's going to be a really kind of crucial election to watch, I think. That was Melanie Bunce, a reader in journalism at City University in London and the author of The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World, published this week by Bridget Williams Books. And you can hear more of what Melanie had to say about New Zealand journalism and the global trends affecting it in the online version of the story on the RNZ website or the RNZ app. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, we heard earlier that last weekend's Herald on Sunday had plenty about the measles outbreak in it behind that startling, splotchy red front page. And inside, there was a thoroughly bogus claim about harm to our health in an advert. Under the blood-red headline, Don't Do It! exclamation mark, was an open letter from what purported to be a National Chiropractors Association, and they were warning Herald on Sunday readers not to take part in a current social media campaign promoting a big brand in toothbrushes. Now this, the ad claimed, asked people to send in pictures of themselves opening wide, as wide as possible, with their heads tipped right back to go into the draw to win a prize pack with 50 bucks. Now, this piece of marketing didn't seem to work too well. When MediaWatch checked, only 10 Facebook users had taken the bait and sent in a selfie. And so far as we could tell, no news media fell for the fake news that the so-called social media campaign might be harming people. But it did attract the attention of TBNZ's Seven Sharp show, who tried to solve the mystery. The plot thickens. And then we notice the letter's untraceable CEO, Galakot Villamope, is a perfect anagram for... Colgate Palmolive. It's a classic toothbrush war. Reach versus Colgate. So we got in touch with Colgate. But this had nothing to do with Colgate, as Seven Sharp then discovered. So we're back to page one, or 23. Until the chiropractors tell us a sales company called Parve placed the ad. However, that was pretty obvious already from the Facebook page which carried this promotion because it linked back to the website of the ad agency in Auckland that had created it. Still, Seven Sharp did put the managing director of the agency on the spot to concede their campaign was poorly planned. Slightly misguided perhaps if this was an attempt to do something a bit different and a bit of fun and reveal it as a sort of an out-of-season April Fool's Day gag. Did you guys think at any point imitating a group like this was maybe not the greatest idea? Well, we do now. Uh, my sense was early on that it was uh, the name was somewhat different and the logo very different, and uh, in retrospect, that is much too close, and so I, I certainly apologise for that. 
The actual Chiropractors Association has told Seven Sharp it's going to complain to the Advertising Standards Authority about the ad in the Herald on Sunday. And this is not in the end a case of any publicity is good publicity, according to Seven Sharp. Though back in the Seven Sharp studio last Tuesday, co-host Jeremy Wells, who's pulled a few on-air pranks in his time, reckoned it was. But it did work, didn't it? I mean, we did a story on it, so it totally worked. Well, so they did, but in the end, that didn't do much for the ad agency, which had to admit to a poorly executed campaign on primetime TV, or for the client, which now knows few people could be bothered sending in a selfie for 50 bucks worth of their stuff. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with plenty more at 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again at the same time next Sunday for Media Watch, here on RNZ National.